I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Hey, good morning. Um, I just wanted to mention that this month of classes is being sponsored by a dear friend of mine and a former neighbor in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you to Gail Weiss, who's sponsoring the entire month of classes. She's doing it in honor of her birthday, which is in Keyslave Zion, and also her anniversary, which is 10 days after that. So a lot of wonderful things happened in Keyslave. Gail was born and she got married. And ever since I've known Gail, she's been a perpetual student of Torah, just very thirsty for the waters of Torah. And today our topic is going to be water. Oh, H2O. So it's a fitting topic, topic for Gail, who's always been very thirsty for the waters of Torah. Okay, so we have been talking just to review because it's been a couple of weeks. We've been talking about the four elements that are, the world is made up of, earth, water, wind, and fire. And the rabbis teach us, Rabbi Chaim Vital and the Rambam and many others, that just as the outer world is composed of these four elements, every human being is composed of these four elements. <clears throat> We all contain all four of them, but in differing measurements, and we struggle, each one of us, in various ways with the different elements. We discussed the element of earth. We said that earth is the most physical on that hierarchy, that triangle. It's the largest. It represents the physicality of man, our physical part of us. It's that primal instinct to survive. It's the um, need for stability and security and, you know, surety that we're going to be able to make it from this day to the next day. And the negative manifestation of earth and afar is sadness, sluggishness desire to give up and give in and we talked about its very negative trait which is jealousy right there's not enough for everybody the idea of jealousy and competition and we see that manifested in the story of Cain and Hevel in the Torah where Cain rises up and kills his brother Hevel and the name itself, Cain, in Hebrew, is the root of the word kinyan, which means to acquire, right? If earth is this quality of acquisition of the material world and making sure I'm taken care of, right? So I can make it to the finish line and on a very physical level, live out my life, then Cain represents us. And again, his name is also the shorish of the word kinah, jealousy. Because often in this rat race of acquisition and this primal need for survival, 
Jealousy is a natural outgrowth of that. You know, you have what I'm supposed to have. If you have that, then that means there's less for me. And we know that in the Torah itself, Hashem says to Cain after, the, after he murders his brother, why is your face fallen? Why do you look so sad? Don't you know that if you do tshuva, you can try again. You can start over. So this is, you know, part of the struggle of our earthiness. Whenever we give in to despair, to depression, to sadness, to giving up, or we look around us and see everybody else as a competitor, right? As somebody who is taking away from me, what we need to employ is the example of Avraham, right? Because we said that Avraham and Sarah come to teach us how to use the earth quality properly. And just a quick review, because unfortunately that class wasn't uh, recorded. But a quick review, one of the ways that we learned from Avram and Sarah of how to get out of that negative earthiness that we all have and rise above it, so to speak, or use it to our advantage, is we learn that Avram and Sarah had this abundance mindset, right? Or what we would call the Emuna mindset. As opposed to Kayan, Avraham comes along and teaches us expansiveness. There's enough for everyone. That if you believe in Hashem and you trust in Hashem, then nobody can take away what's mine. Right? And this kind of expansiveness and sense of Hashem having all the resources and giving them to you, if you're using them and want to use them in the right way, right? This is what Avram and Sarah represent. This outer focus, this generosity, this ability to bring people in. Hashem's going to give me what I need in order to be able to do hachnasas orchim, right? He was famous for inviting guests, for opening up his tent to many, many people. And we also see from Avram and Sarah the uh, Mida of Zrizus. We had a whole series on that of enthusiasm, of alacrity, of get up and go, of moving their bodies. Vayakats, uh, sorry, Vayarats, Vayakam, right? Avram runs to do everything. He runs even to saddle his donkey to take Yitzchak up to the Akeda where he's going to slaughter his son. He runs. Okay, so the idea that our outer movements affect our inner feelings, that's one of the ways we can overcome our earthiness. We all know this, right? If you're feeling lousy, if you're feeling sluggish, you get up and dance, you go for a walk, you find somebody to do something for, right? When I was a teenager and I'd be, you know, my mother would say, go and volunteer, go do something for somebody else and you're going to feel better. And this is what Avram Avinu and Avram Sarah come to teach us about how to battle, how to rise above this earthiness that we can get stuck in. Another thing we learn from Avram and Sarah is the importance of a daily routine of structure in our lives, of knowing every day what it is that we want to accomplish, a certain habit, certain good habits, waking up in the morning with Mode Ani opening up a sitter right away or learning some piece of inspiration to start your day as we are this morning. Kola kavod, everybody, right? And having a daily routine 
is very, very important to become a creature of habit, of good habits. And one other point that I didn't mention, you know, is that, the, or maybe I did mention it, but I don't think it was recorded, that the name Avraham equals the number 248. So for those of you who have heard this number before, 248 are the positive mitzvot in the Torah. They're the do mitzvahs, do this, do that, do this, do that. And this was Avraham. Avraham's name represents the 248 mitzvot, which actually, actually, which actually symbolize or correspond to the 248 limbs in a person's body. So this is another allusion to the fact that Avram knew how to use his body, how to take his physicality, which has the potential to pull a person down and be master of it and use it in the service of God. Through the positive mitzvot, through the chesed that he did, through the proactive movement and enthusiasm that he put into everything he did. And lastly, we know that Avram instituted morning prayer. Each of the Avot instituted a different time for prayer. He was the morning guy. He taught us to wake up the morning, right? I don't know about you, but I remember when I was a mother of many little children. And if I would like say to myself, I just want to sleep another five minutes. I just need another 10 minutes, right? That was it. If my kids were up before me, the whole day, I felt like I was just running after them, running, trying to like get back on top of my day, just for those few extra minutes that the Yetzirah convinced me that I would just be a new person if I had, you know, eight hours and five minutes more, then it would be good, right? But the whole day would be, be scrambling, as opposed to that feeling of getting up before they get up, right? and going downstairs and getting a few things ready and feeling like you are on top of this. So we know this in our daily lives and this is what Avraham, Avraham Avinu taught us, right? Okay, so let's go to the concept of water. Okay, we're gonna talk a little bit about water and what the struggle of water is. Okay. So water, we said in our first class, is connected to emotion, both positive and negative emotions, the emotions of love, of even lust, which can be positive and negative, the emotion of pain, And all the other emotions that are connected to water, right? We said that water can be calm and placid. Water can be waves, gentle waves. Water can be, you know, stormy waves that threaten to take a person under. Water is also very much a symbol of pleasure, right? Too much water, we said, is no good. When a person has too much pleasure, too much indulgences, even in those things which are permitted, they lose their sensitivity to pleasure. And not just that, when they are no longer the master of it, they can be, it can turn into addictions. So water represents that 
desire for it to pull us under and for us to, you know, drink too much or so to speak, uh, you know, not put any boundaries on the water because we know that the nature of water is such that if there isn't a clee, if there isn't a vessel or a boundary to keep it where it is, water just naturally spreads out, right? So it's, you know, saying to yourself, I'm just gonna have one piece of chocolate and then saying, well, you know, that was so good. I think I'll have another and another and another and I'll have a whole bar. Maybe I'll even eat the whole box and, you know, whoops, there goes my diet and there goes my long-term goal for that momentary pleasure, right? A moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips, right? So this is the idea of, you know, water in a very obvious way, but we're going to give a lot of other examples when we go deeply into water in a different, a different series that I want to, want to do with you guys. So Water is connected to emotion and love. Water is, is the root of both an endless pursuit of pleasure, including those that are forbidden and, and even unhealthy, sorry, and unhealthy indulgences, even of those which are allowed. There's a famous rumbum where he talks about a naval. What's a novel? A novel is a degenerate. And he calls a novel, a, a novel, the shoot Torah, that you can be a degenerate with the permission of the Torah. In other words, you're not doing anything that the Torah says you can't do. The Torah says eat. The Torah says enjoy yourself. The Torah says eat kosher food. So the Rambam refers to somebody who eats the best texture, the best, you know, Glad kosher food, but he overeats. He eats to excess. He's not in control of his taiba, of his desire, of his lust, of his water element. So what the Rambam is teaching us is you could become a degenerate with permission, with the permission of the Torah. The Torah doesn't tell you, you know, it tells you, it, it tries to guide you, but you have to work on yourself to find the shafil hazahav, the, the middle path, the proper place of moderation. Okay, so the movement and life-giving power of water represents our desire to experience the finer things in life. Now, the episode of Noah in the Torah is the episode that teaches us what happens when water is misused. When people run after and pursue pleasure, for pleasure's sake, right? The goal of life is to get as much pleasure as I possibly can. This is what the advertising teaches us. As soon as I've got one thing, I need the next thing because it hasn't filled me for some reason. And there's always a promise that the next toy I get, the next vacation I take, the next piece of clothing I buy, the next Epicurean food that I eat, I will be satisfied, I will be fulfilled. But we know that this is an illusion because when we're chasing pleasure for pleasure's sake and not for the purpose of spiritual growth, then there's no end to it. 
the craving never goes away, right? We say he who has 100 wants 200. That taiva or pleasures are like salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Okay, so this was what was happening in the time of Noah. First of all, we have a um, we have a, a little a little story, a little clip in the Torah when it's leading into the story of the people of Noah's time that they were involved in adultery. That the sons of men saw these beautiful women and they basically took them and did whatever they wanted with them and lusted after them. The verse is the powerful people saw how beautiful the daughters of men were. And the generation of the flood was basically caught up in a world of indulgence. There was Hamas. Hamas is robbery, right? Everybody felt that what is yours is mine. There were no sense of boundaries. There was stealing and robbery. The social fabric of the world had broken down. The lusts had you know, seeped down from man into the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, right? Animals were mating with animals from other species. The whole world was infected with this immorality. And so we know that Hashem destroys this generation with water. Mita keneged mita, measure for measure, that which you abused your water element, it is that through which you will be destroyed or be destroy yourself, basically. Okay? So, now what's the Jewish view of pleasure? Just to go back, right? Many, many religions do not see how physical pleasure and the path to spirituality can be reconciled. In many religions, as we know, some of the big ones, and of course the Eastern religions, there's a very big emphasis on separating yourself from the physical world, asceticism. If I wanna get close to God, I have to go as far away as I possibly can from any kind of physical indulgence and pleasure. Now, we have this, too, in our religion, right? We have in Pirkei Avos, there's a Mishnah, right? It says that you should eat bread and drink water and sleep on the floor and basically practice what's called precious, separating yourself from physical pleasure in order for to become a great tzaddik, in order to become a spiritual personality. On the other hand, like very much else in Judaism, we always have the opposite message together with that. Because Judaism is a dialectic where we take two op seemingly opposite ideas and we fuse them together as one and find the right path for each one of us. It will be different, right? Based on our personalities, based on what we need in terms of pleasures. Some people don't need as much as other people do. And that's why when we look at other people or we look what other people are doing, it doesn't serve us because each one of us will need different. But back to that idea. So um, what was I saying? Um, 
Okay. So yes, on the opposite end of Judaism, we're told every Shabbat, every Yantam, we're supposed to eat delicacies. We're supposed to eat meat and drink the finest wine. We should get dressed up for shul in our finest duds, right? Spend a lot of money on your clothes. Make sure you feel and look great, right? I once heard somebody say, like, can you imagine an Eastern monk or somebody or, you know, a guru or a Brahmin looking through the window of a Jewish household on Shabbos, you know, like peeking through the window. And he's been told that Shabbos is the holiest day of the week. It's the holiest day. The Jewish people, they're, they're an Am Kadosh. They're so holy. And he says, you know, I want to go learn from this holy people because let's face it, everything came from them, Right. So, you know, he creeps up to the window and he looks through on Friday night and, you know, he figures everybody's going to be sitting on the floor and they're going to be fasting and maybe they're going to be, you know, reciting prayers all night long around candles. But instead, he sees everybody gorging themselves on food (laughs) and, you know, one course, two courses, three courses, and they're all dressed to the hilt, right, in the latest fashions, no less, you know with expensive shakles on their heads, et cetera, et cetera, right? And then he's waiting. Well, maybe something's going to happen. And he looks in at Shabbos lunch, right? And he sees the same thing over and over again. And then again, the third meal, they're eating again and drinking no less. I mean, drinking liquor, right? Liquor and beer and who knows what. And of course, he's completely perplexed. You know, this is the holy people. This is what they do on their holiest day right? Shabbos is holier than Yom Kippur, we're told. Okay? And so you can imagine, but this is the Jewish people. We say God created the world with pleasures. He wants us to enjoy them. We're even told that after 120 years, when we go to Olam Haba, one of the questions Hashem is going to ask each and every one of us is, did you enjoy my world? Did you taste that fruit? Did you See my Alps. Rabbi Shimson Rafael Hirsch said that you're going to be asked, did you see my Alps? Did you enjoy my world? And did you use this enjoyment and this pleasure to come closer to me, to connect to me, to give yourself energy, to do what you're supposed to do in this world, to be able to do mitzvot, to be able to overcome your struggles and your Yetzirah? Did you use this pleasure all around you as a means to connect, as a means to relationship? Water is about relationships. Water is about connection. Now, who do we learn about how to confront the challenges of our water element? So we go to the next couple, the next Avos, Yitzchak and Rivka. Now, Yitzchak is the last person that you would think of as being physically indulgent, right? Being into the pleasures of the world. Of all the Avot, he seems to have the least personality, right? So much of his life is just seems to be an imitation of his father's life. The same way Avram went down to Egypt and his wife, Sarah, was kidnapped. Yitzchak also, you know, has his wife kidnapped. Abraham digs these wells. 
the Philistine stopped them up and Yitzchak has to redig the wells that his father dug. We don't feel a lot about Yitzchak, but if we look a little more closely, we're going to see why Yitzchak is the um, poster child, if you like, is the one that we look to to see how to control this element of water. What is Yitzchak's greatest personality trait? Just like Avraham is the personification of chesed, which of course we all have to imitate, as we said, to overcome our earth element, Yitzchak is the personification of discipline, of diligence, of strictness, of boundaries, of limit. So I don't, you know, we see right away, and I'm sure you women understand immediately that this is what is needed in order to be able to control that natural craving that a human being was given, right? Even if we go back to the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Chava, we're told, you can eat everything in this garden, the fruits, the beautiful plants, everything is here for you. But there's one tree, don't touch it. Don't eat from it. And which one do they want more than anything? Because from the beginning of time, that's human nature. Not only that we bitter, bitter, uh, sorry, stolen waters are sweeter, right? But that we have this natural craving for pleasure. Well, if there's something that you told me I can't have, I want that. I want that pleasure, right? So, so Yitzchak is Gevura. He's teaching us boundaries, right? We say in Pirkei Avos, Ezehu Gibor, who is the strong man? And we don't say it's the one who can, you know, go out there and fight a war and get badges for being the best uh, warrior, right? The answer that is given is Kovesh Es Yitzro, the one who is able to overcome his Yetzer, his inclination for the wrong thing or for too much of the right thing, right? The person who's able to struggle with himself, forget about other people, struggle with his own inner world, right? Because we said each one of us is an olam katan. The outer world is just a reflection of the struggle that's going on within each one of us every single moment of every single day. And the choices that we make and the, uh, the manner in which we overcome our unique struggles is what Hashem is measuring and looking at. Back to a point that I've made in other classes many times, for those of you who have been with me, the definition of spiritual growth is not goal reached, but distance covered. So God isn't looking for you to win the run through the finish line and say, I'm perfect, <laughs> right? You gave me 120 years, I'm perfect. I'm completely in balance. I've got my earth, my water, my wind, my fire. It's all perfect. What God is looking at is the struggle and he knows our struggles and he composed and created each one of us with our specific struggles, our specific life challenges, our personality, which is what these elements um, <clears throat> are very much intertwined with, our character. Okay, and so he's looking to see, are you moving in the right direction? 
Are you taking baby steps? Are you introspecting and asking yourself, when I give into this indulgence, this momentary pleasure, al cheshbon ma, on what, it, like, what, what's my cheshbon? Right? Okay, so back to Yitzchak. So Yitzchak is the symbol of, a, of Gevura, of the Gibor. Now, there's no contradiction between maximizing our pleasure, of enjoying the pleasure of this world, but at the same time, we need to be in control of our desires. And this is what the Torah is teaching us, and this is what it means when we say, on the one hand, separate yourself, right, from the world of pleasure. On the other hand, indulge and enjoy on the holiest day of Shabbos and somehow find that middle path where you take from the world because you need it for your avodas Hashem and you know when you don't need it, when it's excess, when it's, when it's, when it's in control of you and you're not in control of it right? It's a craving. Just another scoop of ice cream. Okay, just one more. Well, just another pair of shoes. I only have 55 pairs of shoes. I'm going to have to build a new, you know, room in my house. I remember I met this woman. She was from California. She was obviously extremely wealthy. And we were studying at IAT together. We were becoming Balechuva at the same time. And I remember we were sitting in our classroom at IAT and you know, it was a pretty fair-sized classroom. I would say it was like three sizes, the time of the size of this room I'm in, maybe four. And she whispered to me one day in class, she said, this is the size of my shoe closet <laughs> in my house in California. Yeah. And I, actually, I visited her. She lives in Cleveland now. And I, believe me, I believed it. When I saw her house in Cleveland, and I'm sure she was minimizing herself because she's religious now, right? She was toning things down. But um, yeah, and you know, so the point is, is are we in control or is the water in control of us? So there's many allusions to water in the story of Yitzhak and Rivka, who teach us how to use the element of water with mastery. So how do they teach us to navigate the element of water appropriately? So we said that Yitzchak is the Mida of Gevura. And that we see in Yitzchak's life, abstinence and pleasure both being observed in the life of Yitzchak, right? On the one hand, we see the incredible discipline that Yitzchak... Um, that Yitzchak enacts at the Akeda, his father is taking him up to be slaughtered. Now, many people don't realize Yitzchak was 37 years old. He was not a three-year-old child, okay? He was 37 years old. He was a grown man. He obviously understood when they were going up the mountain, we know that Yitzchak says, where is the sacrifice, dad? You know, I see you got the fire and the wood and, you know, but I don't see the sacrifice. And, you know, Abraham basically says, uh, you don't, don't worry, God will show us the sacrifice, you know, and the Torah says, and they walk together, right? And the commentators express, they walked like one person with one heart, both of them equally desirous to fulfill the will of God. 
Now, how does Yitzchak show his gevura? When his father's tying him up to be sacrificed, Yitzchak actually says to his father, Avraham, make sure you tie me really tight because I don't want to flinch when you slaughter me and create, so to speak, an imperfect sacrifice, right? I want it to be an ola tamima, a perfect sacrifice. So the amount of discipline and gavura that this takes is clear. On the other hand, and obviously this is a, an example of a complete nullification of self, bitol, total bitul, for Ravit, bitul, of oneself, right? Yes, he knew he was going to be sacrificed. It wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't like a, a rocket science for him to realize that uh, his father was taking him. Um, anyway, so, and yet, at the same time that we read of this story of the Akedah, the Torah makes mention of Yitzchak's affinity for physical pleasure. Where do we know that Yitzchak enjoys physical pleasure? There's a lot of food references, right, about Yitzchak. Yitzchak, we're told, loves Esav more than Yaakov. Why? Because he put, the Torah says, quote, he put hunted food in his mouth. Okay? So one of the commentaries that we can come up with with Yitzchak is he was a bit of an Epicurean. Okay? He liked food and he liked it done well. And Esav happened to be a great cook. Okay, not only did he bring fresh hunted meat to him every single day, right, but he must have made some real good delicacies because Yitzchak loved Esav because he put hunted food in his mouth. So on the shot level, on the simple level of the reading, we have this man who's Mr. Ascetic, Mr. Discipline, Mr., you know, eschews the pleasures of the world, so to speak. And yet here he is, we're always talking about food and Yitzchak. What's going on here? Later, Rivka says to Yaakov, go fetch me two choice goats and I will make of them a dish for you, for your father, such as he likes. Okay, another reference to food. So Yitzchak's on the one hand self-negating, and on the other hand, he appreciates the finer things. But there's no contradiction in Judaism in this way. There's no contradiction, and it's not a coincidence. Judaism, there's a misconception out there that Judaism is a religion that's full of rules and regulations and encourages a life of abstinence. But rather, we're not supposed to limit our pleasure Judaism, Hashem wants us to maximize our pleasure of this world by developing the ability to control our desires. When we control our desires, when we're able to say, I only eat this on Shabbos, right? I'm not having ice cream all week long. I'm only eating it on Shabbos. That ice cream that we enjoy, right? We enjoy that ice cream so much more. Right? And there are so many examples of this in life. We're going to give more examples. I remember uh, one of my neighbors, her daughter was dating and she was taking a long time to find the right one. She was already heading into her 30s. And I still remember because it really struck me that her daughter was dating a very, very wealthy person's son. 
And they themselves were of meager means, but I guess, you know, for whatever reason, she was dating this extremely wealthy. And one of the things that, uh, that the mother said, maybe the daughter noticed it on a date, she said he pulled out money from his pocket and used it as if it were tissues. In other words, it was like, it didn't have any meaning, it didn't have any value almost, right? It's like, if you eat candy all day, you can't taste it anymore, right? So we all understand this concept, okay? So Judaism wants us to maximize our pleasure in this world and enjoy them, but by developing the ability to control our desires, Hashem is telling us and the Torah is teaching us, you'll have even more pleasure, right? If you can stop every once a week and just enjoy what you have, you will enjoy your pleasures and taste them in a way that you can't when you're running all week long. You will enjoy your relationships, your family, the good food, the clothing, the community, the camaraderie, the peace, the tranquility, because the pleasures of this world are supposed to give us tranquility and serenity. That's what the Ramchal tells us in Masilas Yashari. You know that you're using the pleasures of the world properly if you have increased serenity and tranquility. If instead you are anxious and nervous and running and craving, and then it's, it, 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 it's, it's working against you, right? It's working against you. Okay. Another thing we learn about Yitzchak is Yitzchak gives us the afternoon prayer, which is Mincha, which happens to be the most difficult prayer to pray. pray the most difficult prayer to pray, right, right? And the beautiful language is that the word for prayer when Yitzchak prays is the word Lasuach. It says, Vayetze Yitzchak Lasuach Basadeh. The word Lasuach means Sicha. He went out to have a conversation with God. So again, water represents relationship and connection. And the kind of prayer that Yitzchak is, um, is um, modeling for us is prayer that's connecting to God, talking to God, conversing with God, treating God like your best friend, treating Hashem like your mommy and daddy all combined, right? Treating Hashem like a person or like the person in your life who you trust more than anybody else, who wants to do good for you, who wants to give you what you need. And this was Yitzchak. We don't think of him this way. He taught us about relationship. But together with relationship, the hardest time to pray is mincha. It takes discipline. We're in the middle of our day, right? We're busy. We're doing stuff. We're making deals, right? I still remember when we lived in Edmonton, we were, uh, we got to know the Germasian family there. And, you know, the Germasian family are very interesting people. They themselves became more religious. Um, they went back to complete Orthodox Judaism, traditional Judaism. And one of the brothers, I hope he won't mind my saying this, but he once told a story that many Jewish people in Edmonton worked for him. And they had a shul in their office building when they became more religious. And Mincha time, he would go around the, you know, the building and collect Jews to come and 
make a minion. And a lot of these Jewish guys were not religious at all. And they'd say, oh, Mr. Germanian, I'm so sorry, but I'm, I'm in the middle of, of some very, I'm making I'm some very important stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm making a deal right now for you. And Mr. Germanian would say to them, listen, one of your deals is worth 500, sorry, 500 of your deals is worth one of my deals, okay? And I'm going to Mincha right now. Or he'd say, if they'd say, I don't have any time, he'd say, you don't have any time? I will give you lots of time. I will give you lots of time. You don't have any time, right? <laughs> and that's how we get these poor guys to Mincha, okay? But the point of the story is, is that Mincha, everybody's busy, busy, busy. Everybody feels like I'm running the world right now. I don't need to go pray to God you know, because I, I've taken over the world. And this is the time that when you rip yourself away and you pray, it takes a lot of gavura. It takes a lot of sacrifice. And of course, we know that discipline is the idea that the greater the effort, the greater the effort, the greater the sacrifice sometimes, the greater the satisfaction, right? We sacrifice for our children. We sacrifice for those things that we love. We sacrifice for our bodies. We go to the gym and, and inflict pain on ourselves, right? And we do that. It's counterintuitive. This is not pleasant. This is not pleasurable. But we do it because we see the long-term goal. It's worth it because of the satisfaction that we get of being disciplined, of being mastered, of telling our body, this is what you are going to do right now, right? I know you want to sit on the couch and eat potato chips, but we're not doing that now. We're going for a walk on this beautiful day. I know you want to give in to your sadness and your despair and your sluggishness, and you know, why should I bother? But we're not doing that. We're going out and enjoying some pleasures. We're going out for lunch, okay? Because my water element is going to kick my earth element and get things back into balance. And by the way, Rabbi Buxbaum explains that the water and the earth elements are the two most difficult elements that we struggle with all the time. These two bigger ones that are at the bottom of our triangle. Okay, great. And I just wanted to say that we all know that sometimes you have to say no to pleasure for the long-term goal of greater pleasure. So, of course, we know this intellectually, and we've all done this in our life, but we all have areas and places where we give in for that momentary pleasure. And we see this in last week's Parsha very clearly, right? With Asaph. Poor Asaph, he comes in from the field and he's starving, right? Yaakov simmered a stew and Asaph came in from the field and he was exhausted. Asaph said to Yaakov, pour into me now some of that very red stuff. Give me some of that soup for I am exhausted. And Yaakov says to him, okay, you can have the soup as long as you sell me the birthright. And Asaph says, what do I, who cares about the birthright? What do I need it for? I'm going to die anyway, right? And what use of this is to me? And Yaakov says, swear to me as this day. And he swore and he sold his birthright to Yaakov. And Yaakov gave Asa bread and lentil stew. 
So what we see here is Asab for this momentary pleasure, right? For satisfying his hunger, he gave up a long-term vision of being the chosen, so to speak, being the son who the Masora would continue through and instead became the son who went on a completely different way, right? went off and did not stay part of the Jewish people, but rather became Edom, the people who persecuted us throughout history because we're told that Edom, which means red, right? Give me some of that red stew that the people of Edom and the Edomites and Edom in general represents Rome, Christianity, and all of those people throughout our history who oppressed us and more than oppressed us. Their goal was to exterminate us. And so, and it's interesting because after it says, Yaakov gave Ace of bread and lentil stew, the Torah says, and he ate and he drank and he got up and he left. And the rabbis asked, what do we need so many words for what he did after he ate the stew? He ate and he drank and he got up and he left. And what the rabbis are trying to show is that he had time after he drank it to think things over, to say, gee whiz, I made a huge mistake. Now that my tummy's full, what did I do, right? As we all say when we give into our indulgences, I really have to have that. I have to have that. I have to have that. And then we get it. And then we say, what did I do? Why did I do that? Why did I eat that? Right? Why did I say that? I was trying not to say that piece of Lush and Hara and I couldn't help myself and I said it. I was trying to keep that secret. Somebody told me, don't tell anybody. And I was doing so well for two weeks and then I couldn't anymore, right? And so it's showing that Asab had this time afterwards. And then it tells us, but Asab spurned the birthright that even with that thinking afterwards, he didn't regret what he'd done. Because to him, the before the birthright, was nothing special. It was not what he wanted. Okay. Another idea. Love is like water. And Yitzhak and Rivka, for the first time, are the first couple where the Torah introduces the love relationship. So just to read it for you. So right after... Yitzchak is davening in the field. He's having his conversation. It says, he raised his eyes and he saw camels were coming. And Rivka raised her eyes and saw Yitzchak. And she said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field toward us? And the servant said, he is my master. She then took the veil and covered herself. The servant told Yitzchak all the things that he had done. Um, By the way, the servant is Eliezer, right? He's Abraham's servant. And we know that he, he's the one who goes and looks for a wife for Yitzchak. Where does he find her? Water. He finds her at the well, right? A lot of things take place with water. What test does he see to see if she's the wife for Yitzchak? He wants to see what kind of chesed she's going to do. Is she a child of Abraham, right? Because we know Gevura is not enough. We need chesed and then gevura, right? All the 
midot of the avot. It's not that, you know, a person should have one and not the other, but each one was famous for one of them, but all of them are necessary to become a complete and balanced person. So Eliezer was seeing, is this a woman of chesed? And we know the story of Rivka, right? No, not only will I draw water for you, but I'll draw water for all your camels, right? And she took the earth element, right? And she was on top of it, right? She was running. The words there too are she's running and she's going back and forth and she's bizrizo. She's enthusiastic to do chesed and she's running all over the place, right? And here it says that when Yitzhak brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, he married Rivka, she became his wife, and he loved her. And he was consoled after his mother. We're told that when Rivka enters the tent of Yitzhak, he has a sign that this was the right woman because all of the miracles that were in the tent of Sarah returned, that left after Sarah died, returned to the tent. The Shabbos candles stayed lit from one Shabbos to the next. The challah stayed fresh from one Shabbos to the next. And there was a cloud above the tent, which was the divine presence, the Shekhinah, which was there above the tent. Okay, but back to this idea of love and water. So the generation of the flood made no boundaries, right? Again, they, instead of love, they were motivated by lust right? Lust again is, um, Rav Noah Weinberg used to give a definition of the difference between lust or infatuation and love. But basically, the idea of lust is there is no boundaries, right? And water we know needs to be channeled and directed properly in a relationship in terms of connecting to another person, and then it becomes the source of all bracha, okay? So either you connect with another person and it can destroy, or it becomes the source of all bracha. And I just, it just reminds me, I, I you know, I've been to many Sheva brachas and one of the, um, one of the uh, vorts that's very popular is that if you take the word ish and the word isha, you see that they both contain the same two letters, right? They both have aleph and shin. Now in ish, you have the letter yud and in isha, you have the letter hey, which is the name of God, right? Yud and hey, like we say, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise God, yud and hey. So the famous board is that when a couple has yud and hey, right? When they coming together in a true love relationship of connection and building something together, right? Then the divine presence is there. But if you take out, right? The spiritual channeling of the relationship, then you're left with aish. You're left with just fire and destruction, right? Two people burning each other up, fighting, you know, arguing, whatever. In it for themselves, right? For my pleasure, for what I can get from you, for what you can give me. And there's not that mutual, again, building of love. Okay, 
Um, so another description of water we have with Yitzchak, of course, is the wells, right? This takes up a lot of time also that Yitzchak keeps, the Pelishtim keep on filling up these wells and Yitzchak has to keep, you know, digging them out and exposing them again. And the wells are water, obviously. And here they just represent the spiritual wisdom of Torah, the spiritual wisdom that Avram and Yitzchak were trying to bring to the world. And the Pelishtim were, so to speak, the material, physical, negative forces of the world that want to, you know, bury that, that don't want that exposed. Okay, so this is another idea of water and Yitzchak. But back to the idea of, you know, the one who learns the art of inner discipline and restraint will experience the deepest love and sensuality. You know, not to go into it too deeply, but we know that we have the laws of mikvah, right? And we know that the idea is that there's abstinence, that a man and a woman separate during the time of a woman's menses. And we know the idea that that separation is in order to come back together again. And that abstinence makes the heart grow fonder. And that there's something electrifying, physically, sensually, literally just on a very physical level of the fact that you abstain and then you come back. The love is, the intimacy is even stronger, right? The attachment is greater. And again, this is the idea that absence and self-control can make a love deeper and more intimate. We see that Hashem understands human beings, that when you say no, and then you say yes, it's much more exciting and it takes gavura, but the relationship is deeper and more intimate because of it. The waters of blessing can flow when the waters of lust are properly channeled. If lust is a means to love and intimacy, then it's like water. Water is hydrogen and oxygen, two opposing forces which make peace with each other and create water. And this is what two people do when they connect and use that lust, use that taiva, that desire, which God put in us because he wants us to want to mate with the opposite sex. There needs to be that drive. I once mentioned that Gemara where one of the great rabbis said to God, why don't you just get rid of the Yetzir Hara? Then we won't have any problems. And God said, okay, I'll get rid of the Yetzirah. And it said, all the chickens stopped laying eggs, right? And, you know, whatever. And they said, okay, fine. Put, put the Yetzirah back in the world, right? We, we need that drive. We need that, 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 that spiritual, that, sorry, sensual desire. Okay, so the struggles of sadness of the earth and the struggles of the temptation of the water are constant struggles that affect so many people's lives, right? Because element of water is not only the place where we feel pleasure, but it's also where we feel pain. Bitter waters that feel like they're trying to pull us in and drown us. But from this place, we can reach a level of, of hope. So hope is also connected to water. Which is a, and hope is a way that we perfect our character. 
So we're going to call this the waters of hope. The waters of hope, like the waters of love, have the power to give us life and vitality, no matter what we're going through in life. So, so Yitzchak, who gave us the afternoon prayer, right? We have so many um, water images when it comes to prayer, such as, I will pour my heart out like water, says David HaMelech, right? Dim'a, tears, right? We're told that Hashem never turns away the water of tears. Tears symbolize hope and they symbolize prayer. And one of the questions that we're going to ask, be asked when we go to the next world, you know, did you enjoy my world? Did you enjoy the pleasures that were permitted to you? Did you see my helps, right? One of the other questions that we're going to be asked is how did you deal with adversity? Did you hope? Si pisa lishua. Did you hope for deliverance? Did you hope for deliverance from trouble? Lishua secha kivisi Hashem. Right? Some people say this three times at night with the bedtime Shema. Lishua techa kiviti Hashem. To your salvation, God, I hoped. Hope to God, be strong and continue to hope. This is part of the Jewish hallmarks. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs talks about the Jewish, that Judaism gave the idea of hope to the world because we survived, because we always felt that tomorrow is going to be better, right? Again, back to the beginning of creation, the day begins at night, in struggle, in challenge, in difficulty. But we're always moving towards the light, the day, the hope, the future. It'll be better tomorrow. It could be better right now. Because the city of happiness is in the state of mind, right? And so much depends on how we look at things. And of course, when we are in deep trouble, where we channel that pain and that suffering, we have to channel it towards Hashem because that builds us, that makes us into greater people. He gives us the pain and the struggle and the difficulty in the hopes that we will turn to him and say, I can't, it's too much for me, help me. Why, what, what do you want from me? And this is what creates the, a connection that's real, where we develop. God doesn't need anything, but we need, right? Did our suffering make us better or did it make us bitter? Because all the pain and suffering we go through in our lifetime is related to our mission in this world, which is usually beyond our understanding, right? As well as we might think we know what our mission is, you know, a lot of times when the suffering comes, when the challenges come, many times we're just left with the question, you know, lima, not, not why, but for what purpose? What, what, what do you want from me? So Rivka and Yitzchak are a symbol of this hope. A symbol of this hope. And Yitzchak, the name Yitzchak actually means he will rejoice, right? We know that Avram and Sarah, that Sarah laughs when God tells her, when Hashem tells her she's going to have a child, right? And there's a whole, 
discussion, you know, did she laugh because she didn't have enough emuna? You know, that what did that's so absurd? How do you expect me to have a child? You know, um, you know, and then Avraham, you know, laughs later on, but they're told to name their son Yitzchak. And Yitzchak means he will rejoice, right? One second, page 104. I just want to read you. So Yitzhak is a child of parents who were unable to have children. Then he goes through the ordeal of, bi of the binding of Yitzhak, right? And he goes through all kinds of difficulties. But it says Yitzhak is a man of hope and prayer. When Rivka meets him, he's in, in meditating in the field. When they're not able to have children, the Torah says they sat and prayed until they were answered. They're a symbol of hope. Our, our rabbis teach us further that it was in the merit of Yitzhak's prayers in heaven that the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt. Okay, so Yitzhak means to rejoice. So there's two kinds of suffering. The first kind of suffering that God sends is meant to be a wake-up call for us. And we want to wake up when the suffering is not intense, when it's something small, right? We said that suffering, according to the Talmud, can be banging your finger, stubbing your toe, getting to the bank, and you're a minute late, and it closes. Somebody cutting you off in traffic going to the grocery store for one item and that's the only item they don't have. Does that ever happen to you? That happens to me all the time, right? Then I end up buying 20 other things, but it's like, I didn't get that vanilla, whatever. You know, that little item that I went for. <clears throat> that's called suffering. <clears throat> if we wake up then and say, Hashem hu amelech, Hashem, you're the king, you're running my life. You're running my world, even the minutiae of my life. And I say, oops, and I just notice him. Maybe that's all he wants me to do. And I thank him for all the things that are going well in my day. That's all he wants me to do, right? Then I've learned something. I've grown. I've developed myself. There was purpose for that suffering. But if we ignore it, and ignore it, and ignore it, and ignore all the good stuff, and ignore all that we have to be grateful for, God tries to get our attention to say, hello, hello down there. Are you awake? Are you up? Are you just running on this earth? By the way, the word Eretz is very interesting because Eretz comes from the word Arutz, I will run, I will run, ruts, right? Because that's what we do. We run all over this planet, right? But for what? Are we just running? Or are we running towards something? Are we running towards connection? Are we running towards greater self-development? Are we running towards self-knowledge and knowledge of our creator and connection and using that water to connect us? <clears throat> okay, I'm sorry. We're almost finished. I just, there's so much good stuff. Um, one more page. Okay. So again, earth challenges us to rise above sadness, to use our body in a joyful and healthy way, to create daily habits, to do things with enthusiasm. The water challenges us to master temptations, 
to look for meaningful connection and try to fill this natural need for pleasure with deep loving relationships. And especially with the relationship, the most pleasurable of all relationships that's available to us when we ask for it, which is connecting to the highest source of pleasure. The one I like to say who created all the pleasures, right? So what greater pleasure could there be than connecting to the source of all the pleasures who created the elves, who created all the colors of the incredible fall trees, who created all the different types of fruit and vegetables that we enjoy. What greater pleasure could there be than connecting to the source of all pleasures in this world, of all physical and relationship pleasures, etc. okay? The great Hasidic master said, Rav Tzadok, he said, in the areas that a person struggles and repeatedly fails, it is in those areas that he is destined for greatness. It's in those areas of weakness and struggle where your greatness lies. And again, it's about getting up and trying again. Because the race does not go to the swift, right? The victory doesn't go to the strong, as Shlomo HaMelech told us. But it goes to the person who continues to get up and try again. Okay, the last idea, and I know I'm going over a little bit, but we did start a little bit late, is that part of love and connection between two people is the desire to have children. Both Yitzchak and Rivka pray to have a child, and we know that all the imahot were, were infertile, right? They could not have children. If you looked at things physically, biologically, except for Leah. But we know that there are three keys that are in the hands of God. In the second bracha of Shemona Esrei, it's called Gevura. It's the bracha that is, corresponds to Yitzchak. We're told there that there are three keys in the hands of God that only God can give you directly. And those are rain, right? We say, Atagibor le'olam Hashem mechaye meisim. Atarav lehoshia, right? So one is that only God can resurrect the dead. That's one of the keys that he holds in his hand. Another one we say there, the bracha mashiv ruach and murid ha-geshem, right? That God holds the bracha of rain, right? Which we need for the gashmiut in the world, for the prosperity in the world. And finally, he holds the key to childbirth, right? It's all the way up there on the kisei ha-kavu. So, Water and childbirth and Gevura are all connected through Yitzchak. And just to say that even people who are in a relationship who don't have children, right? So what about them? So we learn in the Parshas Noach, Ela Todos Noach, Noach Ish Tzadi. So it says these are the generations of Noach, and then we're expecting that they're going to talk about his children. These are the children that he had. But it says, Noach is tzaddik. Noach was a tzaddik. And of course, the rabbis say, what's going on here? What kind of a sentence is this? And Rashi tells us that the progeny of a tzaddik, of a great person, are his good deeds. So the answer to that question, well, what if I don't have children? How can I 
pass on anything? How can I be vital in terms of the transmission of Judaism to the next generation? It says, whoever teaches someone Torah, it's as if he gave birth to him. You teach one piece of wisdom to somebody and it's like you gave birth to him. When these great people like Rav Noach Weinberg or Rav Meir Schuster, I'm reading the story right now about Rav Meir Schuster, a tap on the shoulder, this shy, quiet, awkward man who spent his life tapping people on the shoulder at the hotel and saying, are you Jewish? Do you want to meet a wise man? Do you want to go to yeshiva? And everybody says about him, he was so quiet. He was so unassuming. He was so awkward. How many people in Olam Haba where he is today is he going to meet and God's going to introduce them as his children and their children as his grandchildren because of those ways, that way that he touched other people's lives. And we can all do that. We can all do that. And those are our children. Okay, ladies, thank you so much for listening. So we've talked about the water element. God willing, we're going to discuss the wind next week and how it relates to the stories in the Torah. Okay, I won't keep you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank and have you. a wonderful day. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Beautiful learning. Beautiful teaching. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you. It was day. amazing. If anybody Thank wants you so a sponsor much. or if anybody has a question or if anybody wants a coaching session, just email me, devoravale at yahoo.ca. Take care. Wonderful share. Thank you, Liz. Bye, Harriet. Bye, Ravi. Take care.